Hello and welcome to the Facts Over Fandom Show. I am your host, Brandon Podgorski. And hey, I, I'm thrilled to be with you today. See, usually I say I'm excited to be with you today, but I'm thrilled to be with you today because today is episode number 20 of the Facts Over Fandom Show. I've been doing this now for over the past 20 weeks, almost a half a year. Really enjoy coming to you each week and talking about the business side, culture side of sport and how they all kind of intersect. So excited here for episode number 20. And before we get started with our episode, I'm also excited to share on episode 20, we have our first sponsor, our only sponsor, might be our only sponsor, but we have our first sponsor, Crossroads Shirts. I want you to check out Crossroads Shirts if you're checking us out on YouTube or Rumble. I'm going to show you their website here. You can see Crossroad Shirts if you go to etsy.com slash shop slash Crossroad Shirts. You can check them out. Right now, they've got their Indiana and their Ohio collection. And Crossroad Shirts, their motto is, shirts you wish your school sold. So they're fun shirts. I'm going to scroll down here a little bit. You can check them out. But it's not just big schools. And that was the intent behind Crossroad Shirts is, you know, the big schools get all the fun. You know, your your Ohio States and your Notre Dames, as we're thinking about Indiana, Ohio, they have all their shirts. And Crossroad Shirts will do some of those too, but they want to get some small schools some love. So I'm looking at the Ohio collection right here, and it's not complete yet. It's going to be complete here in the next few days, I'm being told. But we got Lake Erie College, a D2. We got Central State, um, you know, Xavier's represented. Ohio Wesleyan, a D3. You can get a shirt for a D3. Um, you got Miami, of course, you got Ohio State here. We got Ohio University, we got Wright State. So we got some D1s there. Let's check out the Indiana collection. So you're looking at the Indiana collection. They have both t-shirts and they have hoodies. Um, they've got Rose Holman D3, University of Evansville, IUPUI, which doesn't even exist anymore, IUPUI. Now they're two separate or, uh, institutions. I see Butler, Purdue, Wabash College, an all-men's college there in western Indiana. Um, Indiana, DePaul, big Wabash rival, got DePaul. University of Indianapolis, another D2, and Notre Dame. Um, you can see that I've got, I'm going to stop that share. You can see I've got on my banner spikes, Valentine B-Town hoodie on. Of course, being a graduate of Indiana University, I said, hey, you know, if you're going to sponsor this show, you got to throw me a shirt. So that's what I have here. My banner spikes, Valentine B-Town. If you went to IU, you're from Bloomington, that'll make total sense to you. So check them out. Like I said, you go to Etsy.com slash shop slash Crossroads Shirts. You can also check them out on Facebook at Crossroads Shirts and on Instagram at Crossroads Shirt. Check them out. Um, I think they're going to give us a promo code here pretty soon. And as soon as I get that, we'll get that out to you guys. But please, they're going to help. They're helping the show. Let's show them some love and let's give Crossroads Shirts a little bit of business. So the topic we're going to talk about today, and I kind of teed this up a little bit here on our social media channels. If you're not following us on social media, please go ahead and check us out. We're on Instagram and Twitter, both at FOF underscore show. And if you weren't aware, Tuesday, 6 p.m. this this week was the trade deadline for Major League Baseball. And inevitably, when the trade deadline comes up, there's always a lot of terms being thrown out, uh, contractual terms, and you know, um, you know, players are being used as quote unquote rentals. And so, you know, as I'm kind of going through that, you know, when I was just kind of growing up and as a fan and as a kid, 
even, you know, kind of getting into college, I didn't really understand what all these terms meant. You know, what is arbitration? What's collective bargaining? Um, what's free agency? We have an idea of it, but really how did it get started and what is it? And so now as I teach this stuff for a living, that's what I wanted to talk about today is kind of break down professional sports contracts. And there's a lot of similarities when you look between the different leagues, but there's also a lot of differences. So we're going to break down, I'm going to talk about collective bargaining and a little bit of uh, of the union, of the players' unions for the certain sports. But I'll, I'll kind of break down, you know, what arbitration looks like, not just arbitration for things like discipline, but also what does it look like in baseball? Um, what's it look like a little bit in hockey as well? Uh, because those sports are a little unique. And when we're talking about baseball, hockey, football, uh, basketball, we're talking about the four big sports here in the United States. We're talking about uh, MLB, NHL, NBA, and the NHL. And so well, I'm going to break those down um, this afternoon in this video and in, in on this podcast. And, and I apologize, this is coming out a little bit late. You know, this week I had a lot of life happen, a lot of busyness going on. So this show is going out late on a Friday, uh, but I appreciate you hanging in here with us here on episode 20. Like I said, give us a follow Instagram, Twitter at FOF underscore show. Make sure you listen to the show on either Spotify, Apple, uh, Google, Amazon. Watch us on YouTube or rumble. So let's dive in. And I don't usually like to do this. I usually just kind of like to like to talk right at you. You know, in my heart, I'm kind of more of a, a radio guy, certainly than I am a, a video guy. I mean, you can see that just by how my face looks. Um, but I, I put together a, a presentation to kind of break some of this stuff down a little bit, make it a little bit easier for you to understand. So, you know, I would love if you guys, everybody went to Spotify, listen to, us to, listen to us through Spotify. It's the easiest way for us to get monetized. But I think today, the easiest thing for you to do is go check us out on YouTube, youtube.com slash at FOF show, or just look up, look up facts over fandom on YouTube. And you could also check Rumble. Hey, Rumble's great as well. Um, check those out. So I am going to bring up this presentation. And if you're listening to us on the audio version, you're going to be able to follow along just fine as well. So don't worry about it. All right. I'll kind of read everything that's coming up on the screen. Probably would uh, help if I started from the beginning. All right. So what are professional sport labor unions? I'm going to move myself up here a little bit. Right. So virtually all major league teams are unionized and we're talking about professional sports teams. So if you're a sport that is a team sport, your players more than likely that they've got a union. Now, we don't see unions in individual sports. So while I said we see them in the big four here in the United States, um, you wouldn't see a, a union in individual sports and things like tennis or, or golf. And some of the issues that we look see in collective bargaining negotiations where you have the players bargaining with the owners are things where, you know, short careers, like the average career of an NFL player, it's only about three and a half years. So, you know, some of the things that we're seeing out right now, like, well, let's talk about the Jonathan Taylor situation. And I already kind of brought him up in, in a, a previous podcast, I think last week. But, you know, he's on his rookie contract. And I think he only has a year left. So obviously he wants an extension and he feels that um, he is not going to be paid what he feels he should get paid. 
going forward because right now in a running backs in the NFL, um, they feel like the owners, you know, colluding is a really, really strong word, but they feel like the owners are kind of um, depressing the market in a, in a certain respect and not paying running backs what running backs feel that they're owed. And so um, he's trying to use whatever leverage he can by um, sitting out right now or, or asking for a trade, actually more specifically asking for a trade um, to hope he can get a better deal with a different team. I don't think he will. He will. I don't think he has any leverage in this negotiation right now, whatever negotiation he's trying to trying to have. But, you know, players want to get as much money as they can because their careers are very, very short. You know, not not all players are guaranteed that next contract after their rookie contract. And we've seen plenty of players wash out in, in all four pro sports. So they know they have this very short amount of time to where they can make as much money as possible. And I also think with the NFL, and, and I probably should have looked at this before I came on, but I don't, um, I, I'm not sure if you um, get your pension until you hit, I think, 10 years in the league. So that's another big thing for players as well. But uh, make sure you fact check that for me before um, before we get forward, or maybe they can't get a full pension until they hit 10 years in the league. And that's not all that common with players in the NFL, but it's something that's been collectively bargained. Uh, little job security. Um, again, if um, Wally Pip, if you're not familiar with him, um, Google Wally Pip. So uh, Wally Pip, and I just want to make sure that um, I'm getting my facts right. Right. He um, was an American baseball player. And what he is best known for is the guy who was playing. And then he lost his starting role to Lou Gehrig. Um, I think he might have been uh, performance or he was hurt and he lost the starting role to Lou Gehrig. And then Lou Gehrig came in and was obviously uh, the, the Iron Man and ended up playing for over 2000 straight games. So you don't want to get Wally picked and you know, you have little job security in professional sports because Obviously, they want people who are going to get the job done. It's going to give them the best chance to win. This is not youth sports where everybody gets a chance to play. Um, there's a lot of money at stake. So obviously, we want our best players playing for us. The disparity of bargaining priorities among stars and bench players. Um, obviously, you know, stars have more leverage um, than your bench players do. And there's more money and other benefits that might be able to go to them as compared to bench players. Um, the disparity of bargaining priorities in, in employer units, sorry, cut out there a minute. And then um, long-term collective agreements are obviously favored because we want to try to keep labor peace as much as possible because labor disruptions in sport can be far more impactful than they can in other industries, just because of the supply of workers. You know, the players playing in our major professional leagues here in the United States are some of the best athletes in the world. There's just not a lot of other those other of those athletes just hanging out that are gonna that you're gonna be able to come in. In replacement athletes, people don't want to go and pay and see them. Right. So it behooves owners and players to make sure that they have labor peace. So, you know, just some collective bargaining facts by a league. I might not go through all these, but I'll go through a few. Um, you know, uh, Major League Baseball. So like in Major League Baseball, one of the things that's agreed upon with the owners and the players is that 
all players that are selected are required to play in the all-star game unless injured or excused. In the NFL, you've got franchise players. Um, In the NFL, they can deem a player who will be an unrestricted free agent a franchise player. So this means the player has to stay with the team if certain conditions are met. And so obviously if you're a player and I think with the franchise, if you get tagged with the franchise tag, um, you're going to make something. Um, I think it's maybe like the average of the top 10 spots in, in your, um, uh, in your position. It, it's something to that extent or to the top 25% of the spots in, in, at your uh, position. Well, you know, players don't want to be tagged because they want multi-year contracts. Um, but owners, this is a way to keep a really good player at a lower price. But again, that franchise tag is something that was agreed upon by the owners and the players in uh, their collective bargaining. In the NHL, um, all 14 teams that missed the playoffs, they all have a chance at the number one overall draft pick. I know that's been talked about in basketball a lot in the NBA. So um, I think that's a pretty good rule there. So duty to engage in collective bargaining. What are the things that are mandatory that we have to talk about? Because there are federal laws that oversee um, unions and bargaining between owners and unions or or companies, businesses, organizations, and the union. So mandatory things that you have to bargain for are things like hours, wages, and terms and condition of employment. So terms and condition of employment, if we're thinking about the NFL, um, some of the terms and conditions for them where, um, you know, players wanted to stop, uh, they they wanted to have fewer practices in the offseason, and they didn't want to hit as much in training camp just to protect their bodies. That would be a term and condition of employment. Permissive subjects or anything just we hadn't gone over or anything that hours, wages, terms and conditions of employment and management is not obligated to bargain over those. Now, I think in good faith um, and to keep a good relationship with your employees, it doesn't hurt to go over those things. But the things that the owners or, or management have to bargain are hours, how long are people, how often are people going to work, how much are we going to pay them and the terms and conditions of their employment. And so there's a duty of fair representation where the union has to represent all employees in bargaining union fairly and in good faith, right? So, um, you know, they can't act in their own selfish means or they can't only um, worry about like one little group of the union at the expense of everybody else. So no arbitrary bad no arbitrary, bad faith, hostile, or discriminatory actions by the union are allowed. Um, otherwise, the union commits an unfair labor practice um, per the National Labor Relations Act, and um, employees can seek, seek relief in the courts from that. And so what a concerted activity would be, would be some type of work stoppage or, or some type of, um, it, it's a maneuver basically to get the other side to the table or to just to walk away from negotiations altogether. So for example, the workers, um, in this case, the players, they could uh, decide to go on strike. So let's say that they have a contract right now, they have an agreement, but um, they don't feel that it's fair or that the owners are not holding up their end of the bargain. The players can just say, hey, we're not going to play. 
You know, we are not going to come and we're not going to play. We've seen that happen in pro sports. Same thing, management. Um, if um, bargaining is not going anywhere, um, if um, they're not happy with the offers, you know, we're getting to the end of the uh, collective bargaining agreement term. So let's say it was a term of seven years and we're getting to the end. And let's say it ends December 31st and, you know, we get to we get to the end of December and the owners are like, you know what? We don't have agreement in place. We're just going to lock players out. We're not going to use uh, we're, we're not going to let you in the facility. We're not going to play games. You're going to lose paychecks. Now, the union has kind of a war chest of funds where they can continue to pay players. But that's going to dry up pretty quick. So the owners, really, I think in these negotiations, the owners are the ones who have the most leverage because you're talking about billionaires, kind of fighting with millionaires. Um, but the owners cannot afford also to not play and, and to continue to lose money. So there's uh, you know, a, a common interest for both sides to come to the table and get things worked out. And most recently, we saw a lockout in uh, Major League Baseball, um, but thankfully, they did get um, labor peace and were able to move forward with with the season, even if it was just a uh, a tad bit delayed. So let's talk about collective bargaining then. Right? So we're going to bring the owners and the players together. And the union's goal, the player union's goal, is to negotiate a contract over those mandatory subjects that we talk about and try to chip away at management's right to run its business as it seats fit, right? Because the union wants to do what's in the best interest of the players and try to get the players the best, the biggest uh, biggest piece of the pie. And for the management, for the owners, um, they, they come to collective bargaining to try to get antitrust exemption and retain as many management rights as possible. So if you're familiar with antitrust law, basically, um, you know, an industry like a, a company or, or corporation, they can't have a monopoly um, in their certain industry. There has to be fair competition. So, you know, Walmart cannot be the only big box retail store in the country. They can't buy everybody else up. And the only place you can go shop at is Walmart. Um, the, the federal government would probably see that as a monopoly. So there needs to be um, competition, um, ostensibly that's better for the consumer and it lowers prices and all those things. Um, sport doesn't necessarily have that. In fact, there's a famous case with baseball where there is an antitrust um, carve out for Major League Baseball. So Major League Baseball has no competition. So basically they can set the rules however they want to set the rules with baseball. Right? But like I said, the process, it does favor compromise between the two sides. I think owners ultimately kind of have the leverage, but they cannot afford to lose money over time. You also don't want to lose goodwill with your fans. So I do think that having both sides come together and work together and compromise does behoove both the owners and the players. So how does this work in professional sport? Talking about labor and, and antitrust law. Um, well, it forces negotiations over policies that are restrictive to players. So things like drafts, salary caps, limits on free agency, um, those things are negotiated. And what we're going to look at, I'm going to get through this presentation, and then I want to show you a, a video. And 
it's a video. I, I don't usually show videos and I don't usually bring in other clips on this show, but I think it's really, really impactful. Um, and it's about a guy named Kurt Flood. And if you're not familiar with Kurt Flood, Kurt Flood played for the St. Louis Cardinals. He was an outfielder with the St. Louis Cardinals. And he might have been one of the most instrumental people in helping usher in the era, the era of free agency. And this did not get ushered in, in, in until the 70s. So free agency is still a relatively new thing in professional sport. I mean, you just think about how the history of professional sport and, you know, over 100 years in each league that these sports have been around. And so players did not have the rights to be a free agent and, and be able to go to the highest bidder. Um, they were locked in to their contracts. Owners would collude and try to restrict certain players. So now that unions are in place in these team sports, it limits that and it helps give the players um, more um, more power, a little bit more more freedom. And it just makes the process a little bit more fair, uh, certainly for the players. And so CBAs, collective bargaining agreements, they're a contract that represents the culmination of collective bargaining negotiations. The owners, hey, these are our demands. Players, these are our demands. This is what we disagree on, but this is what we agree on. Okay, what we agree on, let's put it pen to paper. What we disagree on, let's continue to hash that out, negotiate it. Okay, now we agree on everything, put it in a document, and away we go, right? Now, the, the relationship, though, that bargaining relationship, it's always ongoing um, because the administration of the collective bargaining agreement, it's always ongoing. We don't just sign it and then forget about it, right? Um, new things are going to come into play. So if you're paying attention right now to the strike with the Hollywood actors and the writers and the studios, one of the things that they're fighting over that hasn't ever really been an issue before is artificial intelligence. And the studios want to retain the right of these actors' likenesses to use an artificial intelligence in the future. You know, we could have Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones 200 years from now. Right? And the actors don't want that. So those are things, you know, new technology comes into the space, you know, before one side can say, yeah, we're going to do this. They have to bargain with the other side. And that's a continual process. So each side has the right to convince the other side to come back to the table. And then, um, you know, we go on from there once we finally come to an agreement. And just some of the wage provisions. So I, we said there's three mandatory things that you have to negotiate or, or that you have to um, discuss in collective bargaining. Wages, hours, terms, conditions of employment. So wage provisions could be things like minimum salaries. I'm not going to go through this exhaustive list here, but a wage provision could be minimum salary. So um, the players will come and they'll say, hey, um, like in baseball, you know, we want a minimum salary for once you hit the minimum major leagues to be $300,000. The owners can say, yeah, we want a 200,000. Then we come, all right, well, we'll split the difference, make it 250. Our provisions, uh, I talked about that earlier, like training camp and, and spring training, how many days are we going to practice? Um, how often are we going to wear pads? Things like that. And then terms and condition of employment, something like uh, player conduct or discipline. And we're seeing issues with that right now, not only in pro sport, but college, but, you know, college, we don't have CBAs, but um, with gambling, 
with um, players and gambling. And I did a whole another episode on that uh, a couple months ago. Um, but you know what is allowable in the CB- CBA with player with with gambling, and at what point are you not? Do you cross that line to where now you'll get disciplined? And if you get caught gambling, what w- will the discipline be? Like these are all things that can be negotiated. So as you see. This list here, what what are this like 30 different things right here? This is an even exhaustive list. So that's why I say these things are ongoing because you're preparing for the next negotiation. Even if it's five, six, seven years down the road, there's so many things that change because professional sports obviously doesn't happen in a vacuum. So let's talk about arbitration. Okay. So arbitration, we're going to say there is a disagreement with maybe something in the CBA between a player and an owner. So arbitration is the process in which the disputing parties are going to hire a neutral third party to render a decision that is final and binding. So in something like rights arbitration might be the interpretation or application of a contract. Um, Maybe, you know, we're talking about... performance bonuses, something like that in arbitration. And maybe a player felt that he hit his performance bonus. Um, let's say let's say a player is going to get a uh, major league baseball player. Let's say they're going to get an extra $250,000 if they have, we'll say, um, 300 hits on the season, right? Well, they get their 300th hit, the end of the season comes, um, but actually really um, this, they went back, the scores went back, they kind of audited the books, and then there was a couple hits there that were actually errors, we're going to change them. Um, now he's at 298 and he's not 300. Well, you know, the player might say, hey, listen, no, I hit my number um, because, you know, I can't help that they were changed the errors, they were hits at first, there's nothing in the contract that says, you know, if it's changed to an error later, that it would go against me, I hit my 300 number, where the owner's going to be like, well, yeah, but technically, officially, it was an error, not an actual hit, you didn't get the 300 hits. So you might go to arbitration, because you disagree, have the neutral third party, have them make a decision there. Right? So how are disputes resolved? when we're talking about contractual law. Um, So five kind of steps here. You know, one, an employee discusses the grievance with the union rep or a steward, some type of leader in the union, um, or they report it directly to a supervisor. If the union rep and the employee agrees that the grievance has merit, then they will submit a written formal grievance. The union representative and a management representative will attempt to resolve the grievance. So you as the player, you may not go into the owner's office and try to alleviate this. Um, Maybe you you start that way, but it didn't work. So now we're going to have our union rep do it. And then step four, the grievance could be heard before a committee to assist the two sides in resolving the dispute. And then finally, the arbitration hearing is held and an independent arbitrator or panel of arbitrators renders a decision. So you could see it's not just an overnight quick um, resolution of this. It does take time to go through the arbitration process. Now, that is dealing with terms of the contract. Baseball and hockey have salary arbitration, and this gets extremely interesting in baseball. So the end of the season comes, 
And, you know, the end of the season, we'll say kind of end of October. And teams have somewhere like a window of like six to eight weeks to re-sign. You know, I mean, they got a couple of weeks to to re-sign their um their free agents before their unrestricted free agents before they hit the market. But then they got about six or eight weeks to make a decision on their free agents on are if there are um if if they're um, available, if they're uh, qualified for arbitration, they can offer certain free agents on their team arbitration where we're not going to give you, it's not like the franchise tag in the NFL, but we're not going to sign you to a, a new long-term contract, but we want to go to arbitration with you. And we're going to throw out a number for one year on what we're willing to pay. The player is going to come back and have their number on what they're willing to play for. And then the third party is going to make a decision on who won. Did the team win or did the player win? And so in Major League Baseball, they choose the midpoint between the two offers and determine the player is worth more or less than that midpoint. So if team comes with an offer of $1 million and the player wants three, then the midpoint would be two. So players who qualify this are players with at least three years of experience, but fewer than six years of MLB experience. So this is really a weird thing. As you can imagine, you know, you're a player and you've played hard and you've done your best to win and you're going in to meet with the ownership of the team. And the team is trying to make the case that, yeah, we we want to sign you to arbitration, but we think you fell short in all these areas here. And this is why we don't want to pay you. I mean, incredibly awkward, right? And then it's up to the arbitrator to decide who, uh, uh, whose side they're going to go with. Also, um, players don't have to accept arbitration completely up to them. Um, a lot of times they'll accept it. They'll get an offer, say no, then they'll go to free agency and the NHL, um, the arbitrator can choose either of two offers or an amount between the two players are eligible after four years to go to arbitration. And this is something that was negotiated in the collective bargaining agreement for both sports. Okay. So let's switch gears here. Now let's talk about salary caps. Um, salary cap was adopted by the NBA in 1984. Um, other T other leagues have, have adopted salary caps, you know, that, Major League Baseball kind of has a soft cap. Um, the NFL has salary cap, NHL to a certain extent. Um, and it cannot be unilaterally imposed. So what that means is that it's something that has to be negotiated. It comes up in collective bargaining agreements. And Major League Baseball um, has been shy to enact a salary cap now, for players, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword. If there's no salary cap, then your really good players can make a ton of money, which is great for them. Right? However, a salary cap in place makes things a little bit, helps with the parity of the league. You also can have a salary floor, which is something that the players were really pushing on in this last labor negotiation in, in Major League Baseball, where they say, we want to raise that where teams have to spend a minimum amount of money because you'd have some teams, you know, like uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates just wouldn't pay guys, right? Well, you know, obviously the players union wants their players to make more money. So you can also have salary floors. 
And if we look at salary caps and tax thresholds over time, like I said, Major League Baseball, if you're watching us on YouTube or Rumble, they've got the red line here. Let me bring that back up. My apologies. Um, they've had the high, highest salary cap per league, uh, NFL number two, but you know, almost starting to catch up. You've got so many more players. Um, then after that um, is um, the NBA, and then down here is the NHL. But you can see they have all gone up over time. So we're paying players more and more and more and more every year, which would help to explain why tickets cost more and more every year. And so individual versus collective bargaining, you know, um, employee athletes, they've got individual bargaining power and individual contracts. Um, also, uh, there are also parties to collective bargaining agreements through their players association. Um, however, the CBA takes precedence over individual contracts. So, you know, um, so individual contracts, they cannot undermine minimum bargain terms. For, so, for example, players cannot sign for below minimum salaries, even if a player is willing to work for less. So, um, you know, some if you're going to be a professional athlete, you're going to be part of the union. Um, however, some leagues, if they don't have any union, those players can have individual contracts with the league or, or with the team. What about retired players, though? Right? What's the duty of a player's union to retired players? Um, are they still supposed to market the player? Do they help with players with their injury and health? Um, unfortunately, not a whole lot. That's why it's really important in these collective bargaining agreements to think about retired players as well. So these players that are playing now, you know, in just a few years, they're going to be retired. What can we do to set things up for them? Um, because by law, the union can only negotiate and represent the players that are currently playing, not past players and, and not future players, although future players are going to be affected by this. Um, so that's why it's important, you know, hey, let's set up um, uh, some type of pension fund or let's lower the amount of years um, needed to play in this league before you get a pension to help those players to transition once they move on. So the only way for retirees to seek relief is through the courts. And we saw this with the NFL, with the um, concussion settlement just a handful of years ago, where um, there was a billion dollar settlement um, where former players were taking the NFL to court. Um, they ended up settling and, you know, former players were eligible to get, you know, basically based off any diagnosis that they had, um, anything from CTE to, to MS, um, they could get a certain amount of money from that settlement. Okay, so I told you, um, so I'm going to stop that there and I'm going to bring up something else, right? So I told you <clears throat> that's kind of a brief rundown or, or overview of collective bargaining, contract law, and just some of the, the things you might have heard over this week talking about baseball. So I told you I wanted to, I wanted to show you this video with Kurt Flood. And again, I, I don't necessarily like um, 
you know, um, putting other videos out out here. Um, but I thought this one, just because they're 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 cumbersome, and you're listening to this, I, I would think you you kind of want to listen to me. Um, however, this video is good. I, I think it does a good job of explaining uh, a man who went through a lot to help usher in change. Um, some of it uh, I'll talk about where there might be some things I, I don't necessarily agree with. Um, but Kurt Flood certainly was historic in his fight for free agency as we know it today. So let me go ahead and set this up. And hopefully you're watching on YouTube or Rumble. If not, it's not a big deal. Um, you're going to be able to hear this just fine. But make sure that you're going to be able to actually hear it. The drama of free agency has become as much a part of professional sports as the games themselves, but it wasn't always that way. Kurt helped to change the way they do business in the world of sports. Kurt Floyd's legacy is that he gave his life for a lot of baseball players who don't know who he is. It's October 8th, 1969. Kurt gets a call in the morning from not the general manager, not the owner, Gussie Bush, but some middle manager in the front office calls him and, and in sort of a monotone voice says, Kurt, you and Tim McCarter have been traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. It was no small trade. Few ball players ever become as successful and popular as Kurt Flood, who was known to fans as a prolific hitter and defensive wizard, streaking across the outfield to snare fly ball after fly ball. By 1969, he had helped lead the St. Louis Cardinals to three World Series in the previous six years. The Cardinals win. They're the new world champion. Kurt's the longest standing member on the team. He's a three-time All-Star. He's a huge fan favorite. Despite his stardom on and off the field, the Cardinals had begun to sour on Flood. He demanded a raise months after slipping on a key play in Game 7 of the 1968 World Series. From then on, his days in St. Louis appeared to be numbered. He liked St. Louis. He liked playing for the Cardinals. And he just didn't think it was right that he had no say in where he would play. Since the early days of professional baseball, a short clause inserted into every major league contract had given owners complete control over their players. Even when a player's yearly contract was up, the owner could unilaterally renew his contract, essentially binding him to the same franchise for life, allowing him to be paid whatever the owner felt he was worth or traded on a whim. Okay, so I'm going to stop this from time to time and, and interject a little bit. Um, it's a really important point I'm going to that they're talking about here is that that was something called the reserve system. So the reserve system basically said, and, and I'm sorry, you're hearing my dog there in the background, um, but the reserve system was basically that where teams um, still held the rights to their players even after they were done playing. So imagine that. Imagine that. Let's go back to the decision. Let's go back to LeBron James and decision. I know you know it was almost what 12 years ago now at this point. But he's done playing with Cleveland. He's done with his contract. And Cleveland would still hold the rights. So he goes and he says, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. And Cleveland's like, no, you're not. 
we're not letting you go. I mean, it's hard to imagine that in today's time in pro sports, but that was what they were fighting for. And that was something that Kurt Flood really fought for um, against the reserve system. That's why I think he's a, a really important historic piece when we talk about pro sports. So um, let me continue this video here. So it wasn't anger. It was more, this is not right. This just is not my America. Kurt was very much aware of what was going on in the world, and he was very much aware of the fact that he did not have his civil rights. Me as a black man, I, I'm probably a lot more sensitive to the rights of other people because I have been denied these rights. Though Flood had grown up on the West Coast, distanced from the civil rights issues roiling the American South, that had all changed when he was sent to the Southern Minor Leagues at the beginning of his professional career. He saw these two water fountains. One said colored, one said white. He said, for some strange reason, I thought maybe club soda and cola. <laughs> and he said he soon realized, no, this is not club soda. I'm in the South. After one of the first games, the players threw their uh, uniforms in a pile. A clubhouse man came over and he uh, took a broomstick and he picked up Kurt's uniform. These, these things have an effect on people. What I really want out of this thing is to, to give every ball player the chance to be a human being to, and to take advantage of the fact that we live in a free and democratic society. For the right to determine his own future as a ball player, Flood would have to sue Major League Baseball and cut to the core of how America's pastime operated. As the country's first professional team sport, the courts had chosen to view baseball as a game instead of a business. Decades of rulings had exempted baseball from antitrust laws, giving it a special legal status that protected it from competition. The line from the owners when Kurt sued was Kurt Flood is trying to destroy Major League Baseball. And a lot of sports writers were buying the line. They couldn't relate to a guy making $90,000 a year who was rejecting a trade from one team to another. Kurt would say, we have been subsidizing the owners. We just can't even go out and find out, what am I really valued at? What do I need to be paid if I'm getting seven consecutive gold gloves? What is my value? This is Kurt Flood, baseball's Bolshevik. Men before Flood had fought baseball's reserve clause, but no modern athlete framed the issue as starkly. A master and slave relationship you're a man who makes $90,000 a year, which isn't exactly slave wages. What's your retort to that? Well, uh, Howard, um, uh, a well-paid slave is nonetheless a slave. Now, again, I, I, I think the world of, of Kurt Flood, and you know, I really respect his place in the history of pro sports. Um, however, I, I always get a, a little a little leery when people throw around the word slave or, you know, Hey, this person's just like Hitler. And that that's overwrought. I mean, you know, obviously you're getting an opportunity to play um, a, a sport and you're getting paid very well. Now, not comparatively to what athletes are getting paid now, but you certainly wouldn't um, trade places with, with the slave who um, has no say in the matter on what they do. Um, but I think he's just trying to make a, a larger point to where he did not have a lot of say or a lot of control 
in the contract, especially with somebody who was playing at such a high level, who was probably worth, as his wife talked about just a little bit ago, who's probably worth a whole lot more money than what he was getting paid. All right, let's continue. This. There were death threats. I meant vicious. How dare you and biting the hand that feeds you. The players were so afraid of the fallout of a public endorsement of Kurt in this lawsuit. Even Kurt's teammates, when they were in town playing the Mets, didn't show up to the trial. The Supreme Court today rejected a suit by ex-outfielder Kurt Flood. In the end, Flood fared no better than those who had gone before him. With the unprecedented backing of the newly formed Players Union, his case went all the way to the Supreme Court. But he could not beat the owners of the game. At that point, it was devastating because he had given up everything. Had the Players Association known how vulnerable Kurt was financially and how vulnerable Kurt was with alcohol, that they, they would have had some second thoughts. He was far from the ideal plaintiff. Well, I, I did what I thought was right. I, I took it to court. To demonstrate the unfairness of the existing system, Flood had sat out the 1970 season, forfeiting his income for the year. By the time he joined the Washington Senators in 1971, he was no longer the same player on the field or in the eyes of the public. Somehow or other, someone got into the clubhouse with a huge black funeral wreath with his name on it in front of his locker. That was scary. You now are walking around, how do I play center field with my back to people? Flood played only 13 games for Washington before abruptly sending the team's owner a telegram from New York's JFK airport announcing he was quitting. He would never play Major League Baseball again. Though it ultimately failed, Flood's case had laid the groundwork for players to settle the issue at the negotiating table. We lost the case, but it was nevertheless very important because people got to know what was going on and why Kurt Flood was doing this. Three years later, pitchers Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally won an arbitration case that found owners could no longer renew players' contracts in perpetuity opening free agency to all veteran major leaguers. Big league baseball owners have maintained a grip on their players so strong that it has amounted to almost total control of their careers. Now that absolute power may be ending. The league also adopted what some call the Kurt Flood rule, allowing players to veto any trade once they have spent 10 years in the major leagues, including five with their current team. But it was too late for... That's something known as the five and 10 rule. So I'm going to go ahead and end this here. Um, they're going to talk about, unfortunately, um, Kurt Flood and, and his passing away and just some of the demons that he fought in his personal life there. Um, but you can kind of get an idea now. Or, or, and if you knew nothing about free agency or that it's it's only been around for about the past 50 years, you know, and now you know. And now you know why a guy like Kurt Flood, who was such a high profile player, to be able to go and fight that and even sit out a year um, helped to bring about some eventual change. And now players have a whole lot more leverage. Like he had no leverage.
advantage at that point, other than the fact that, you know, he was a name and he was a good player and he used everything he could to uh, to fight for change. Um, but now players owe, you know, a massive amount of, I think, a debt of gratitude to Kurt Flood and, and what he went through to now getting these huge, huge. I mean, as I was looking at um, or, or watching that video, I was, I was checking Twitter and I just saw that Anthony Davis with the, the Lakers signed a Supermax contract. So, you know, guys are signing contracts worth almost $200 million for three years. Um, that doesn't happen if there are guy, aren't guys like Kurt Flood who go before that. So I hope um, you enjoyed this. I hope you learned something. Hope you have a better appreciation now for what pro contracts look like. Stick around for the Uncle Brandon advice segment um, because there's a guy on here that um, he needs some advice and I'm going to give it to him. But let me hit you with some knowledge. Okay, one of my favorite parts of the week, it's time for some Uncle Brandon advice. And, you know, this is the facts over fandom show. So I like to deal in facts here, especially in the first segment. I don't like to interject or try to editorialize too much, you know, but now in this segment, this is where I can be a little bit more meatball and this is where I can give my opinion. So check us out on Twitter. I, I've got this shared here for you. You could see us on Twitter at FOF underscore show. And I see this tweet by ML Football, and ML Football does a really nice job. They put out a, a lot of kind of breaking news updates uh, around the NFL, and you can see that their handle is at underscore ML Football at underscore ML Football. And here's a tweet: Report through OnlyFans, former Clemson linebacker T.J. Dudley made money by selling images of naked underwear teammates in the Clemson locker room per the account beating the bookie. When the team learned of this matter, they kicked him off the team and he has since transferred to Ole Miss. So this guy, TJ Dudley, was taking pictures in the locker room of his teammates, putting them on OnlyFans, and getting people to pay him to see naked pictures of his teammates. Bruh. I, I, I've been in a lot of locker rooms. Yeah, you know, from growing up playing sports to a college coach, athletic director. Whether people like to admit it or not, or realize it or not, the locker room is... A sacred place and not sacred in the context of, you know, it's 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 a religious, holy type of place, but it's sacred where in sports, there's so much outside noise and there's so many people who want to be involved or have an opinion or or, or want to talk to you and, and pulling at your time. The locker room is kind of our safe place where it's us. It's the team we can get away from all distractions. I shouldn't have to worry about another teammate taking pictures of me while I'm naked and putting them on the internet. And I think there's a, and I'm not a lawyer, but I think there is a great legal case here, whether it's evasion of privacy, um, there might even be some revenge porn statutes that uh, that play in here um, to where, you know, he broke the law. Certainly, I think uh, the players have a civil case against this guy here. But if you're an athlete 
Respect the locker room. That is my brain, Uncle Brandon advice for you. Respect the locker room. Now, it doesn't mean that you go in there and you act a fool like Northwestern uh, did with, with their football players and, and having guys r- run naked through or through other naked guys, right? That's not what it means. But respecting the locker room means respecting the, the fact that it's a place where we can finally, as a team, just be together as a team. We don't necessarily have to be on. We're not in front of the cameras. Um, we're, we don't have a mic shoved in our face. We don't have people from the outside looking in. This is, you know, sometimes some of the best team bonding and just conversations and just funny stories happen in the locker room. And they don't have to be inappropriate. Nothing like that. That's not what I'm talking about. But, you know, the locker room and, and the team bus, like those are kind of the two places where you can really kind of bond as a team because it's just you. That's why sometimes teams um, play a little bit better on the road or, or they're able to have those great bonding stories on the road because we're away from all the distractions, right? So what this guy did, personally, I, I think it's illegal. It's certainly un- immoral. And you're breaking the trust that people have in the locker room. I mean, I, I should not have to worry about my personal privacy being invaded on where I go to shower and change to get ready for my sport. I mean, it's really unconscionable what this guy did. And, you know, I'm not in the business of telling coaches how to do their job. But I don't understand if you knew about this, if you're the old Miss, um, the old Miss coaching staff and you knew about this, I don't know how you bring a guy in like that. I just don't. Because I don't know how he's going to have any amount of trust in that locker room. So that's my Uncle Brandon advice for all you athletes. Respect the locker room. And that's going to do it for this episode of Facts Over Fandom. Hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FOF underscore show. And check out our new sponsor, Crossroad Shirts. Uh, You can check them out on uh, Facebook, Instagram at Crossroad Shirts and their website etsy.com slash shop slash Crossroad Shirts. So I will see everybody again next Friday. As always, love God, love each other, be a good sport. Have a great weekend.